Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm so pleased to welcome my good friend, former Assistant Secretary of State for Educational and Cultural Affairs, Marie Royce. She was Assistant Secretary of State from 2018 to 2021. Marie has been a diplomat, a businesswoman, and a university educator throughout her professional life. As Assistant Secretary, she oversaw a bureau of 700 people and a budget of $1 billion. She was an exchange alumna through the American Council for Young Political Leaders and was part of the first waves of Americans to travel overseas following 9-11. She's here today to talk about her experiences throughout her career, and I'm so grateful for Marie to join us today. Thanks, Marie, for joining with us today. Tell us about your background. You were Assistant Secretary of State for Educational and Cultural Affairs from 2018 to 2021. Can you talk about your work as Assistant Secretary? Yes, thank you again for having me on Building the Future, Dan. My budget was just shy of a billion dollars at $760 million. I've had a full career as a businesswoman, diplomat, and educator. I'm an entrepreneur who spent 30 years as a business executive in the Fortune 500. I taught business full-time at the university level, and I've served on over 20 nonprofit boards. And as you noted, I'm an exchange alumna too, and served on two exchange boards. But the honor of serving the U.S. by rallying support for the exceptional individuals and institutions producing our people-to-people diplomacy was the most important mission I've ever taken on. People-to-people networks are integral to national security. Exchanges are transformative. I'd like all global citizens to have the opportunity that Ireland's ambassador, Daniel Mohl, had 45 years ago in Kansas City, Missouri, as part of the summer work travel program, or as I had myself, whether the exchange is virtual or in person. But when I think about the tools that I've relied upon in my role, the groundwork for success was put in place decades ago back in Pomona, California. The city was not without its problems, but it taught me to be self-reliant, resourceful, and to operate as a young diplomat without portfolio. Pomona was and remains an incredibly diverse place in Los Angeles County. Long before I could drive, I was practicing diplomacy because You use those skills to survive. I was the oldest of four kids, and my longing to look over the horizon stems from my family's roots in France and Ireland by way of Canada. That curiosity about the world has only grown stronger, even after visiting 90 countries. My parents also gave me a love for the spoken word, and they stoked a passion for learning in all of us. So great. You've learned a lot in your career, but one of the things I worry about is, you know, we have limited budgets and how we can spend money. Some people would question the value of people-to-people exchanges. Do exchanges pay off for Americans? Are these people-to-people exchanges in the American interest? Dan, they definitely pay off for Americans. And I'll also mention that I also did an article for the Foreign Service Journal on that entitled, Exchanges Pay Off for Americans. And people need to know what makes our work successful. 
The International Visitor Leadership Program, known as IVLP, just celebrated its 80th anniversary. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair are alumni. The State Department may quarterback our people-to-people engagement, but a whole team is needed to show the best of America to the world. For a long time, CSIS has been one of our superstars for hosting IVLP delegations. For that reason, it's great to be taking the field with you. When Arnaud de Borsgrave and Tom Sanderson were directing the Transnational Threats Project for CSIS, 40 groups were hosted on intelligence sharing, organized crime, and terror finance. Leaders learned how valuable an NGO can be with its strong capacity for independent research and links to policymakers. As these delegations ventured across the U.S. to engage the public and private sectors, along with civil society, they came face-to-face with the strength and also the diversity of America. And at the same time, Americans benefited. They heard how the common problems were treated abroad in both familiar and also alternative ways. Participants on both sides felt they contributed to each other's understanding of critical issues of the day, to say nothing of the enduring connections built during the visits. The payoff is significant. Former Libyan ambassador to the United States, Ms. Wafa Bagagas, was herself a previous IVLP participant years before representing her country here in America. IVLP alumna, Ambassador Florida Faber of Albania was invited to speak at the 80th anniversary celebration. It was a real honor to invite her. Her words touched my heart. The story of my country, it's also my story. I was educated in school being told America is our strongest enemy. I became an international citizen of this world when I participated in the IVLP program. And today I stand in front of you as the first woman ambassador of the Republic of Albania to the United States. The United States was among the first countries that showed strong support so the Albanian people could realize their dreams. This is where the support of the United States and the power of those programs come in. In Albania, we had to think of ways to change a communist one-party system to a democracy and embrace the values of the West. The accountability in government and business program gave me a unique perspective on how an entire society functions around one pillar, the Constitution and the law enforcement the checks and balances, how Congress, the Supreme Court, a state like Texas, but even a small town like Geneseo in Illinois functions around one pillar. The law is the same for everyone. Dan, when a leader like Ambassador Faber returns home from America with that knowledge, we are surely changing the world. You oversaw, Marie, sports diplomacy exchange programs. Sports emerged as an integral part of ECA's efforts to build and strengthen relations between the United States and other nations. You were a member of the United States presidential delegation to the FIFA Women's World Cup final match in Lyon, France, between the United States and the Netherlands. It was a great victory for the United States. And I understand that soccer greats Alex Morgan, Julie Foody, and Jill Ellis represented the USA overseas as sports envoys. At the time of this recording, the Olympics have been going on in Beijing. What are your thoughts on the decision to allow athletes, but not diplomats, to participate in the Olympics due to concerns over Uyghurs in Xinjiang? Dan, they're right about this one. The prisons in Xinjiang matter. Send our athletes, not our diplomats. This is profound and it's personal. My father-in-law served in Patton's Third Army in World War II. After the concentration camp at Dhaka was liberated, he documented the horrific crimes. His photos are still inside the archives of Yad Vashem in Israel. Dachau changed him forever. 
When I traveled to Almaty, I met face to face with ethnic Kazakhs and Uyghurs who were ripped from their homes and forced into political prisons in Xinjiang. Then it was horrible. I looked into their eyes and I saw the pain. And I'll never forget the photos of the lost loved ones they showed me that are still missing. They spoke to me about the torture and repression of their Muslim religion. Many of them had their businesses stripped away by the CCP, and some were forced to take on loans, which were impossible to pay back. And at an enormous risk, they wanted to take a photo with me. They were brave, and they desperately wanted me to help them get the word out, which I did. And I'm doing it again today, and I'll never stop doing it. I flew back to the United States, just like my father-in-law, as a different person. That's why we need to speak out against the prisons. You can see photos of the prisons in Xinjiang when you look on the internet. It's all public information. Dachau shapes my thinking about the oppression in China today. I agree. What is the value of international students coming to the United States to study? And what is the value for U.S. students going abroad to study? I lived in Spain. I studied abroad in college in Spain. It changed my life for the better. So I know the power of this. But I'd be curious how you think about this, Marie. Well, I'm sure you had an incredible experience as an international student. And Dan, you could ask a thousand people who have taken this journey not only you, but many others, both coming to the U.S. and going abroad. And they're all going to tell you the same thing. It's one of the most powerful experiences in their life. Wouldn't you agree with me on that, Dan? It was unbelievably powerful. I've had an ongoing relationship with Spain forever, for 30 years, basically, as a result of that. Whenever I'm asked by the government of Spain for something, I always say yes. So if they ask me to come to the embassy, I say yes. If they ask me to receive somebody, I say yes. Being able to speak a second language fluently has been a total professional and personal game changer for me. And the only way I could have done that is living in Spain. So I'm always going to be grateful to Spain. And I've also learned a lot about the country. And I've been able at times to write and speak about issues related to Spain that no one else covers or cares about because they haven't lived in Spain or know a lot about it. Now, it's not something I can monetize, if you will. It's not a significant part of my business, but it's allowed me to work on Latin American issues. It's just changed my life for the better. I met Mrs. Rundy is from Argentina. And if I didn't speak Spanish, I think that was like part of the prenup, Marie, like I had to speak Spanish. So that like I kind of got that one out of the gate. <laughs> my in-laws want to speak in Spanish. My children all speak Spanish. We have a bilingual, binational, bicultural household. All started with me going to study abroad in Spain. Well, you're a great example and testament. We couldn't have planned it any better. Educational exchange transforms lives. Somebody else that had that transformative experience was uh, Senator William Fulbright. He was a student from Arkansas. And he attended school in Oxford in the 1920s, and it changed his life. And it was really the idea behind the Fulbright Foreign Scholarship Program, which just celebrated 75 years, and it's in 165 countries. It was so transformative for him. So when he became chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, he never forgot it. So that's why we need to do everything we can and make it easier for people to enter the United States. Educational exchange is a process that mints virtual U.S. ambassadors. Student mobility was measured at ECA, both inbound and outbound. People like you going outbound. Pell Grant eligible students who wanted to experience a semester abroad could apply for the Gilman Scholarship. And I'm proud to say we now have over 30,000 students who are alumni of the Gilman Scholarship Program. It's amazing. Marie, look, I think we have to talk about this. There's been 
some criticism outside of this country and inside this country about how leaders in the United States talk about individuals coming from other countries. And there's been some controversy about some of the U.S. visa policies about who and how we let folks into this country. And there's been an argument that it sometimes discourages people from wanting to come study in the United States. How should the U.S. balance our security policies while still offering educational opportunities for people from abroad? Well, I think you and I both agree that security comes first. But let's not put policies in place that decrease the flow of worthy students into the United States. International students leave here as advocates for the U.S. This is one of the U.S.'s areas of competitive advantage. We have the best slate of excellent community colleges and universities anywhere in the world and at all price points. So we offer hope to high achievers from all over the world from all levels of income. The United States remains a leading destination and with 4,700 institutions, it has the capacity to host even more students in the years ahead. I don't know if you're aware of this, Dan, but it's the fourth largest service sector export, education. I, I had no idea about that. That's, that is a really shocking and impressive and important statistic. Fourth largest. Well, it is, and it also creates over 450,000 jobs. So That's amazing. It is. You know, students are drawn to the U.S. because of our excellence in instruction, our diversity, and our unequal climate of academic freedom. For people who aren't familiar, Education USA has 435 advising centers. They're really like little mini embassies providing free guidance. It's essentially a one-stop shop in basically 180 countries. Students put what they learn in the United States to work. They then prosper and rise within their home countries. We create goodwill capital that continues working powerfully for the U.S. throughout our lifetimes. That's amazing. 450,000 jobs. I had no idea. That is just, that's amazing. We at CSIS did a major report on international education in an era of great power competition. Marie, how should we think about international education in, an, in this era of great power competition? Rising national security tensions are an unfortunate fact of life, but the implication of that competition makes educational exchange an even stronger imperative. When I was in Thessaloniki, Greece, the candidate for prime minister, who is currently prime minister now, Mitsotakis, told me how he's prioritizing education as a key priority for Greece. Dan, it's amazing. His education in the U.S. had a very big influence on him. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I think if you take the example of the prime minister of Greece and you multiply it across thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of other experiences, it's had an incredible impact on the policies people enact. It has an incredible impact on their willingness to engage with the United States. For us to succeed in the world, we need people to take our phone calls and work with us. And so we're in essence kind of seeding the landscape overseas with people who will take our phone calls and are predisposed to want to work with the United States as opposed to somebody else. The way I'm super predisposed, if somebody from Spain calls me and says they need some help, I'm gonna clear my calendar, I'm gonna make time for them. And if they ask me to do something within my abilities to do it, I'm gonna always say yes. I've written at least a half dozen articles 
because no one else was speaking up on a topic. In a number of instances, I've written a series of about four articles on the issue of Catalonia and Spain, which is an important topic in Spain, but outside of Spain, it's sort of, I'm not going to call it somewhat obscure, but I know enough about it to be dangerous or pretty good at a cocktail party. And so I wrote a series of articles about it, explaining this to the average person who may or may not have ever heard of this and why this matters to the United States. Well, because I wrote all these articles explaining it and from sort of a, a sympathetic perspective from Spain, but framing it in an American interest, I got knighted by the Spanish government. So like, you know, yeah, it's pretty good. So I don't know. I don't get to be called Sir Dan, but it, it's in that zip code. That's, that's pretty incredible. And it's so transformative and I can hear the passion. But I also have to say that you're a credible source because of your actual experience. And that's part of the power of the fact that you went to school there. And I'm also very impressed with the fluency in the language. Yeah, thanks. No, it was like I said, it was like part of the prenup, Marie. Like I wasn't going to get to square one with Mrs. Rundy if I didn't speak Spanish. And certainly my in-laws weren't going to, you know, sign off on this if I didn't speak Spanish either. So our kids go to the Argentine school on Saturday mornings from nine to one. So they're native Spanish speakers. They're very highly fluent. Like you said, it's, it completely changed my life. So who would have thought going overseas would have done that? But that's what it did for me. Okay, so Marie, we've had this thing called COVID-19. How has COVID-19, which I would argue has been a major disruptor in higher education in this country and around the world, I'm on the board of an African universities board, and I've seen it on that in the context of a Shesi University, but it's also impacted higher education. It's impacted cultural educational programming. How has it impacted these things, higher education and cultural educational programming? And at the same time, has COVID-19 perhaps with this disruption created any opportunities? Well, it's had a big impact, and I'm going to talk to you about what that is, but I first want to commend you on the fact that you're on that board in Africa. Africa is in a very important place, and I'm happy to say that we actually had some rise in interest in students from Africa and coming to the U.S. Going back to the question, whether it's been a major disruptor, it's kind of interesting that even during this pandemic, exchanges continued, and all signs are pointing to a surge in interest in applicants for next year. They have strong bipartisan support. In fact, I want to share with you that there's a senator. Now, I'll tell you who that is. Senator Coons from Delaware, who actually, when I went before my hearing, he talked to me about his exchange program when he was 19 and how it changed his life when he went to Kenya. So, it's amazing. I, again, just like you, these exchanges matter. And while so many aspects of our public life have grown divisive and contentious, educational exchange is an oasis of consensus and unified support. Both sides of the aisle support it. Why? Because it works. Many opportunities have been created. Our English classes have always been in extremely high demand. In fact, until I had my job at the State Department, I didn't realize that we taught English all over the world through our American spaces, which were under the ECA Bureau. In the early months of the pandemic, over 1 million people at a time learned English through ECA's education webinars. You know, when you think about the pandemic as far as a positive from a pivoting standpoint, the fact that now we're able to reach so many more people on English language webinars is a real testament to the fact that exchanges continued, learning continued, and our stakeholders successfully pivoted to online and hybrid education programming. Also, our IVLP programming adjusted. I remember vividly welcoming a delegation from Cote d'Ivoire 
who traveled to the United States. There was 12 of them. The ambassador and I both welcomed them. They went to four to six cities. Dan, they did it all virtually. Instead of in the past that they would have met a mayor of a town or civil society, they were going from city to city each week over a period of about five to six weeks, but they were doing it all virtually. So powerful. Sports and music envoys, filmmakers, and our U.S. speakers traveled outbound virtually and continued making an impact. The Stevens Virtual Exchange Initiative, which began in 2015, is for students in the U.S. traveling back to the Middle East and reverse. It's become more innovative and it's really taken off. I was quoted last year in the Washington Post article on Games for Change on the new diplomacy project, which discusses the engagement of 2,700 students in the U.S., Israel, UAE, and Bahrain. It's a new program. It's a virtual student exchange program centering on the development and creation of social impact video games. The initiative provides an opportunity to give everybody a chance to have an exchange. In creating video games, people basically are developing tremendous skills that are involved in that industry. They're better able to think critically, develop STEM skills, and develop leadership skills. I know some might say that the subject of gaming should fall below the notice of a great power. I don't know, Dan, if you know this, but there are over 2 billion gamers right now. So I say to them, you are wrong. Uncovering and contending for influence in emerging spheres, however unlikely they may seem, is exactly what the United States should be doing. We must meet the world's young people where they are. I totally agree with you. So these games completely elude me, but my three kids all play these things. There's like six of these games and they all follow them. You know, like you said, we got to meet them where they are. Some people would sometimes think, well, the experience isn't robust. I want to tell you that I went out in the field in my job and I actually met with students who are part of these exchanges. They were in Jordan or Egypt or other countries, and they felt that their experience was incredibly vivid. I'm sure your children feel the same way. They were part of teams. They improved their English. They actually worked on problem solving. And so they, they loved their exchange program. And in my role, I actually changed the sphere from just college age and brought it all the way down to sixth grade through senior year of college, having that opportunity. So it's incredibly powerful. Again, if everyone could have the opportunity, that's always been part of my vision. Fabulous. We've done a lot of work at CSIS on the creative economy. It's a much bigger component of our economy than people realize, and it's a much bigger component and a growing component of many developing countries where countries want to put their chips on the table in terms of where they're going to make their bets, in terms of where their society is going, et cetera, is around this issue of the creative economy. How should the U.S. think about creative economies in emerging markets, developing countries, And how did you come across the concept of the creative economy as an assistant secretary? Well, first of all, Dan, you and I talked about this already, and I want to give you kudos for what you're doing on the creative economy. Thank you so much for writing this article. Your vision is going to pay dividends. The United States and other countries have had a dialogue on this for over 200 years. And according to history.com, Ben Franklin was a fashion icon in France, where he was the first U.S. ambassador in Paris. So what does that mean? He actually inspired the creative economy. People actually copied him or the hats that he wore, white hats, for example. And so actually that was kind of really the start of things. The U.S. is still actively engaged on cultural exchanges. At the World Expo in Dubai, education, film, music, and sports are featured in the USA Pavilion. 
And I was so happy to see that your article mentioned cultural preservation. I don't know if you're aware, but the United States has 30 signed bilateral agreements on cultural property protection. The strategic value may be lost on some people, but they matter. It was an honor to work closely with the Cultural Property Advisory Committee. Who was on that committee? Presidentially appointed archaeologists, people in the trade, museums, etc. And also, I got to chair the federal government's Cultural Heritage Coordinating Committee. Who was involved in that? FBI, DOD, DHS, Interior, etc. Everybody working together on the subject of antiquities. And for the past few years, antiquities are being returned to their countries of origin, and they support tourism. One great example is the Italian painting Leah and the Swan by Orsini and the activity it generated. I want to also share with you in the Fulbright program, a lot of people think of Fulbright as STEM or public service or business. But I don't know if you know that many of the scholarships are in the area of the arts. Fulbright recently celebrated its 75th year and boasts arts alumni such as pianist Philip Glass, actor John Lithgow, and opera star Renee Fleming. And the IVLP is another example, just celebrated 80 years, but also brings leaders in the arts. So again, these leadership programs can be repurposed and often are, supporting inbound leaders in the arts. You know, one of the most memorable things I did in my job was I went to an international guitar festival in Belgrade, Serbia. The founder is an IVLP alumnus named Bosco, who traveled with an international arts delegation to cities in the U.S. You know what's so exciting about this? He has become a big leader in Serbia's creative economy. And he's been doing this festival for over 15 years. He's done this festival and had people from all over the world competing. And many of the things he learned from his experience on the IBLP program. Our documentary filmmakers, musicians, and athletes have served as envoys on behalf of the U.S. for several years. One of my biggest moments was asking Quincy Jones to re-engage with the ECA Bureau. You know, he went out in the 1950s as an envoy in jazz with Dizzy Gillespie. He's an amazing cultural icon for the United States. I mean, I think he's one of America's, you know, a living treasure of the United States, Quincy Jones. I mean, he's a giant of the 20th century music, a giant. And, you know, he's in the on the shortest of short lists of our greatest musicians. Well, you're exactly right as a composer, as a musician. And he has many talented protégés that he mentors. And so what happened was he actually gave us a few of his protégés to go out just like he did, and represent the United States. One of those was Justin Coughlin. He went outbound on behalf of the U.S. And during the pandemic, Justin also performed in a virtual concert. So think about this for a minute. Justin went out physically, and then when the pandemic hit, he went out and did a virtual concert. Pretty cool. That's the thing about the fact that we were able to, once again, have jazz envoys continue and you know what? You might say to yourself, like, what's the big deal about this? But for many people, they've never met an American before. And so for an American to come out, do workshops, talk to people in the audience, have that experience, it is transformative and changes their life. And in Quincy and Justin, I asked them before I left to see if they could tape a video together. And it was actually launched during International Jazz Month last year. They both talked about the transformative experience they had as jazz envoys representing the U.S. Quincy from the 50s and Justin most recently. That's really powerful. That's amazing. Marie, this yeah. is great. Do you have any parting thoughts you want to share with our audience? Well, I hope that all of our listeners really think about 
exchanges as being key and integral to the United States international national security policies and programs. Exchanges transform lives and they really matter. I so agree. I just think we underestimate that if we want to have security, we need these people to people networks for us to be secure. And I think we underestimate that at our peril. That's right. In fact, when I was in the State Department, there was actually a line in the national security strategy about the power of people to people networks. Marie, this is great. Thanks so much for doing this today. You're welcome. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. And I think just to sum up too, everything we talked about today embraces your program title, Building the Future. Great. Thanks, Marie. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 